Psalms 19 verse 9 says that the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So if you have your copy of God's Word this morning, and I hope you do, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 6 this morning, which finishes out the first section of our discussion about how we as believers are to show enduring goodness, the enduring goodness of Christ, even by honoring our spouses. You see, Peter's been making the point that we as elect exiles who are headed towards an eternal destiny in heaven are to conduct the rest of our time here on earth with an evangelistic focus. He states in chapter 2, verse 9, that we have become God's own possession in order to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. God has left, God has left us here on earth in order to bear witness to the saving gospel with our words and with our lives. And Peter actually starts his discussion on evangelism in the opposite direction that we would normally, and that's by focusing first on our lives. He establishes a priority of focusing on that, on exhibiting enduring goodness. The enduring goodness of Christ. Because while God has not yet transported us from earth to heaven, He has nevertheless transferred us from death to life and from darkness to light. And we are to lean into that advantage when it comes to our relationship with others and talking to other people about Jesus. We as elect exiles need to recognize that the single most powerful tool we have in evangelism, in personal evangelism, second only to the Word of God itself, is the testimony of our own transformed lives. Our very lives are meant to be a witness to the Gospel, a witness that the world cannot ignore. As the old Puritan Thomas Adams once wrote, one eyewitness is better than many ear witnesses. And so as we consider the topic of evangelism, we need to always make sure that we're underlining the gospel by our lives and not undermining it. Peter outlines for us exactly how to do that back in chapter 2, verse 17. He really starts in verse 13 where he tells us to be subject, and then verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. This is how we're to reflect the enduring goodness of Christ in the world in which we live. It is by being subject, honoring everyone, loving the brotherhood, and fearing God. Well, as we've been slowly working our way through that outline, we've come to the topic of how to honor everyone. And most recently, Peter's been showing us that it all starts at home by how we treat our spouse. We either underline our witness to the gospel or not based on how we treat those who are closest to us day in and day out. Based on whether we are showing them enduring goodness or not. Evangelism starts very close to home. It literally starts in the home. And so when it comes to showing the gospel affirming and enduring goodness of Christ in marriage... To a watching world, Peter shows us here in 1 Peter 3, verses 1-7, through that a wife does so by showing respectful submission to her husband, and the husband does, show, does so by showing respectful sensitivity to his wife. And when believers begin to honor everyone, show respect towards everyone, beginning in their own homes, it can have a powerful evangelistic impact. 
As Peter says in verses 1-2, through even those who are highly resistant to the Word of God may be one, he says, without a word, when they see your respectful and pure conduct, when they see your transformed life. So people that would not normally be open to hearing about Jesus can become, by the grace of God, open to hearing about Jesus when they see the difference that Jesus is making in your life and behavior. But that type of deep, heart-centered gospel transformation doesn't just happen, it takes real effort. And that's why Peter says in verses 3-4, through do not let your adorning or your focus of improvement be external, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. See, the only way that Christ's own settled, soothing strength of character will start to become evident in our own lives when we're dealing with circumstances and people is if we first set aside the earthly external external perishable preoccupations that often face us in life and we start to focus preeminently on our own spiritual growth in our walk with the lord a growth that will only come as we consistently and daily long as peter said back in chapter 2 verse 2 for the pure spiritual milk of the word So this is the type of spiritual focus that we need to have if we're going to develop the enduring goodness of Christ in our lives for the glory of God and the salvation of the lost so that everything we do can be done for God's glory and the Great Commission. And so over the last few weeks, when it comes to the Christ-like wife's respectful submission to her husband, we've seen the extent, the aim, and the foundation of marital submission. This morning, we're going to finish by looking at the illustration of marital submission in verse 5 to beginning verse 6 and then followed by the guardrails of marital submission at the end of verse 6. So the illustration followed by the guardrails of marital submission. So with that in mind, let's read 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-7, through 7, and if you would, let's stand in honor of the Word of God as we read this. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 1, the Apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words to us today. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Verse 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening verse 7 likewise husbands live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered this is the word of god whose testimonies our souls keep and love exceedingly let's pray Father, we've heard your word. 
We ask that by your Spirit you would teach it to us this morning. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts of faith to believe and to obey. Give us grace to live it out. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, after Peter gives us the extent, aim, and foundation of marital submission, he then provides for us here the illustration of marital submission. And that's in verse 5 into the beginning of verse 6. Just after Peter stated in verse 4 that believers, and in this context, believing wives, should focus on adorning the hidden person of their heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, he then says in verse 5, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. So these are the women that Christian wives should seek to imitate according to the Spirit of God. The the models that they should aspire to look like, they are the holy women. That is to say, they are the Old Testament saints and believers who had trusted in the coming righteousness and provision of Christ and had become set apart elect exiles just like you and I find ourselves in. These were the holy women that are being talked about here. Holy women who belong to God and yet were still often asked to show enduring goodness to sometimes very nearly godless husbands. And Peter raises these women up as examples because these Old Testament women were able to do the very two things that Peter has been asking these New Testament wives to do. First, these holy women of the past were able to adorn themselves, which is exactly what God commanded, if you recall, back in verse 4. They were able to develop that soothing strength of character and that settled disposition of spirit, even though if you were to study their lives, the circumstances God sent them through were chaotic and crazy. They still had the strength that only God can supply. They were able to keep their focus and not get distracted by earthly preoccupations or the consuming desire to try to change or manipulate their outward circumstances. They were able to adorn the hidden person of the heart. These holy women were able to do. And second, they were able to also submit to their own husbands, just like God commanded back in verse 1 of this chapter, likewise wives, be subject to your own husbands. See, despite the carnality and insensitivity and often unbelief of their own husband, these holy women of old were able to continue showing respectful and pure conduct for the glory of God, even in the midst of hard and difficult circumstances, and sometimes in the midst of hard and difficult husbands. Even in the face of these difficulties and marriages, these women were able to demonstrate enduring goodness. But the question is, how? How were they able to do this? How were they able to navigate above the, the, the crowding concerns and the external distractions that often press in on you from all areas of life? And how were they able to stay focused on simply cultivating before and beyond anything else a Christ-like spirit in the hidden person of their heart? How were they able to do that? Peter gives us the answer. They hoped in God. They hoped in God. Now, if you feel like you're God, you won't have much time to do anything else other than try to control all the circumstances of your life. But when you remember that God is God, now you can actually focus on what you are responsible for. They hoped in God. 
The reason why they were able to stay focused on the hidden person of their heart and not become overly preoccupied by trying to change everything and everyone is because they had a hope not in themselves or their own efforts or their own ambitions. They hoped in God. The same God who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, as chapter 1, verse 3 says. The same God who tells us to set our hope on the transforming grace that's going to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ, as chapter 1, verse 13 says. The same God who has made us believers so that our faith and our hope might be in Him, as chapter 1, verse 21 says. Right? This is the God the holy women of old hoped in. He is the God of hope, the one who inspires hope in all those who trust in Him. And this is, by the way, in the continual, in the present tense, which means that these holy women were continually hoping in God. They kept on trusting in Him. Not that they were perfect, but that the declaration that could be said over their life by the Spirit of God afterwards was, here is someone who kept on trusting in God who's in control. And in so, in so doing, they imitated their Savior, Jesus Christ, by the way. For remember, what did chapter 2, verse 23 tell us about Jesus? It says that when He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten. But rather, here it is, He continually entrusted Himself to Him who judges justly. He hoped in God. How was Jesus able to show enduring goodness through submission in the face of hardship and difficulties by trusting in God? And how are Christian wives to show enduring goodness through submission? It's by following Christ's example. It's by walking in His footsteps. As chapter 2 verse 21 says, it is by trusting in God just like their Savior did. And by hoping in Him. By remembering that, just as we talked about earlier, that God is the one who is able to make all things right. He is the God who is going to make all things right. And He's going to do it in His perfect timing and ways, not your own. That's how you hope in God. You know that He is able to make all things right. He is going to make all things right. And He's going to do it on His timetable, not your own. So hope in God. This is how we hope in Him. And this is how we can stay focused on developing a godly and pure Christ-like spirit within us. This is how we can remain settled and strong despite the many distractions and challenges and circumstances of life. It's by trusting in and hoping in God as the holy women of old did. You know, there's so many examples in Scripture of women who adorn themselves with a holy and beautiful character in spite of the carnality and the callousness and often unbelief of their own husbands. There are so many women that I could turn to We could turn first to, say, Hannah as one example that I thought of. Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2. Do you remember Hannah? What's your first story? Do you remember how she was barren and had no children? Do you remember how her husband was a jerk and got a second wife? And do you remember how when Hannah finally opened up to her husband and told him all about her feelings, he replies, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Talk about a guy who's carnal and insensitive. The opposite of what we're going to see in verse 7 later. And yet, do you ever see Hannah rebuke, complain, despise, or ignore her husband? The answer is no. 
What you do see her do, though, is go to the temple and pray and pray and pray and pray powerfully. What you see Hannah do is faithfully trust in and hope in the God who does all things right, who's going to do all things right, and He's going to do it in His timetable, not her own. You see her trust and hope in God. Through the process, Hannah develops and displays a beautiful Christ-like spirit of enduring goodness and hope, despite the carnality, callousness, and unbelief of her own husband that she lived with day in and day out. We could also turn as another example that came immediately to my mind was later on in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 25, with Abigail. Remember how Abigail was married to a guy named Nabal, whose name literally meant fool? And remember how her foolish husband disrespected David's anoint, or God's anointed David? And while Nabal was preparing a glamorous feast for himself, he turned away David's own starving men and in fact threatened to kill them? And then do you remember how David was about to join Nabal in his foolishness and kill the guy because of his disrespect? And now do you remember what Abigail did? She ran out on behalf of her husband. And she interceded for her carnal husband's life. If she had ever wished that he would drop dead, she didn't show it at that moment. She just showed wisdom, grace, submission, and a beautiful Christ-like spirit of enduring goodness despite the carnality, insensitivity, and unbelief of her husband. She kept trusting in God, a God who does all things right, who's who is able to do all things right, who's going to do all things right, and he's going to do it in his timetable, not your own. And by the way, Nabal did drop dead. God had a timetable for that. See, women like this, like Hannah, and like Abigail, and like so many more that you study throughout Scripture in the Old Testament, these are models that frankly all of us, all of us, should study and imitate. Not just believing wise. Why? It's because they are great examples of what enduring goodness through submission in the face of hardship and difficulty looks like when one hopes in God, when you truly believe that God is able to do all things right, that He's going to do all things right, and He's going to do it in His timetable, not your own. That's why Peter calls on us here especially believing wives, ignore the immodest models that disgrace magazine covers. Stop scrolling through social media and pick up your Bible. Study holy women like this who cultivated a true beauty and strength that could not be conquered because they had a trust in the ever-living Almighty God. It's good stuff. And when we're thinking of believing women who were exemplary in adorning themselves with a holy and beautiful character despite the carnality and sensitivity and unbelief of their own husbands, the woman that Peter puts forward as the, if you, if you will, cover model of Christ-like submission through faith is Sarah, Abraham's wife. You sit there and say, What? I mean, look at Abraham. What a great guy, right? Have you read the story of Abraham recently? (laughs) No, not at all. In fact, actually, Abraham was often an example of carnality, insensitivity, and unbelief. Look at Sarah. 
She made mistakes too. But one thing you do see consistently from Sarah is respectful sensitivity to her husband because she trusted in God. Peter says in verse 6, As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Peter says this is a woman to study as someone who exhibited heartfelt and hope-filled respectful submission for the glory of God. She's a good model, in other words, of everything that Peter has been talking about here. Respectful submission through trusting in God. Sarah is a model first of submission as demonstrated by her faithful obedience to Abraham. Sarah obeyed Abraham. Now let's be clear. I have to be clear. Sarah was not perfect in showing proper submission. At times, Sarah would have really benefited from listening to what Peter's going to mention at the end of verse 6 of making sure that you don't take submission in marriage too far to the point where you no longer do what is good. I'm thinking of when she went along with Abraham's lie that she was Abraham's sister. That was wrong. That was a sin. She was not guarded in her submission. But the point is, in the scriptural record, you never see Sarah disobey her husband or actively work against him or his objectives. She's always submissive. She's always subject. The second thing that Sarah was always towards Abraham was respectful. Sarah was a model of honoring everyone. She's someone all of us should study, even when it came to her own husband. And the example that Peter uses is from Genesis 18.12, when Sarah calls her husband Abraham Lord. Now that verse is not teaching that Christian wives ought to call their husbands Lord. Not at all. If you want, if, if that floats your boat, go ahead. But no, that's not what it's teaching. In fact, I came across a great story this week related to this that I just had to share with you. About a wife who fell into bed at the end of her day and exclaimed loudly as she fell into the pillows, Lord, I'm tired. To which her husband calmly replied, My dear, in the privacy of our own bedroom, you can call me Jim. (laughs) Jim hasn't been heard of since. (laughs) But what Peter's doing here is he's highlighting a moment from Sarah's life, this is important, where she showed true honor and she showed genuine respect towards her husband, not by way of people-pleasing, as I service, but listen to this, from the heart. In fact, this word Lord here is actually the exact same word that the Philippian jailer used over in Acts 16.30 when he said to Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So that term is actually a general term of respect, and that's Peter's point here. He is giving an example from Sarah's life of when she showed Christ-like respect to her husband. Now, you have to ask yourself the question. At least I asked myself the question when I was studying this. Why in the world is this the example of respectful submission that Peter uses? Because there are a lot of examples from Sarah's life that Peter could have drawn from that might, at first glance, be more powerful, right? So... The first one that stood out to me was the call of Abraham himself. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but Abraham's minding his own business in Ur, and God shows up and he says, Hey, Abraham, I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you. Can you imagine the conversation that Abraham had with Sarah later that night? Hey, Sarah, we're going to move. Okay, where are we going? I don't know. 
Okay, well, um, how, how long are we going to be there? I don't know. Okay, how long is it going to take to get there? I don't know. Okay, well, how will we know even when we get there? I, I don't know. Well, do you know anything, Abraham? No, I don't know. <laughs> and and it, it's those stories that aren't explicitly told in Scripture that you're just like, wow, what was going on there, right? But yet Sarah goes with Abraham nonetheless. Think of that. Abraham's call from God in that moment was one of what? Faith. He heard the word of God and he must obey. Sarah's call in that moment was of what? Respectful submission. I'd say it might have been a harder call than Abraham's. At least Abraham heard God's voice. All Sarah heard was Abraham's. And yet she went. What a stark difference can I just say is that from a wife that says, well, if you want me to go along with this, then you better explain this and this and this and this and make sure all of this is taken care of and boom, 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 and then maybe I'll consider it. Now, I want to be clear. All of those things are not wrong or bad if the husband is able to give it. But Abraham wasn't. He was being asked to take a step of faith where it did not make budgetary sense. He was being asked by God to step out in faith and Sarah showed enduring goodness and respectful submission in the face of it all. But this isn't the example that Peter turns to. Why not? Right? So why does Peter turn to this obscure example that seems so strange to us in our culture of calling her husband Lord? Why is this the example? The answer is because this example shows us that Sarah's respect to Abraham, her husband, was not merely an external show of respect. It was actually a sincere respect that came from her heart. See, when Sarah called Abraham Lord in Genesis 18, 12, which is what Peter's referring to here, she didn't say it when she was alone. She didn't say it when she was in front of anybody. She actually said it when she was alone. She said it to herself in her own heart when she was Alone. You see, after God promised to Abraham and Sarah that they were going to have a promised son, Genesis 18.12 tells us, so Sarah laughed to herself, saying, Am I worn out and my Lord is old? Shall I have pleasure? She said that to herself. Think about that. Even in the private discussions of her own heart, Sarah still demonstrated respect for her husband and his derived authority by using a term of respect even in her own mind. That's crazy. Even in her own thought and mind. And that's significant. See, Sarah's respect for her husband's authority was not merely externalized eye service to please people, right? We're not talking about a wife who might have dinner on the table at 5 o'clock sharp but is cursing her husband under her breath. No, it was respect from the heart. It was an internal respect that she gave to her husband in her own heart and her own mind before God that I must honor this man for the position that God has put him in in my life. And again, I want to be very clear. It's not because Abraham deserved this. Oh no, not at all. It's not because Abraham deserved it. It's because God deserved it. That's why. 
she gave God an act of worship in her heart and mind by calling her husband Lord even when no one heard about it. She was worshiping God in this way from the heart. She worshiped God in her own heart and mind by demonstrating respect towards her husband even when no one else knew about it. Sarah's respectful submission comes from the heart. And that's why Peter puts her forward as the premier example of what he's talking about. He says, do you want to know what enduring goodness through submission looks like? Look at Sarah. It looks like that. And frankly, look at Sarah because Sarah looks a lot like who? Christ. Christ. Because Christ, when he was on earth from a young child all the way to his death, he showed genuine, heartfelt respect and submission towards his authorities, even though they did not deserve it. He was king of the universe. But he constantly showed respectful submission to those in authority over him because God deserved it. And he gave God worship through respectfully submitting to those whom God has put over him while he was here on this earth. Sarah follows carefully in Christ's footsteps, just as all believing wives are to follow in his footsteps as well. So I want to be clear. Peter's point is not to go around and call your husband Lord, unless he's like a, in Scotland or something and he owns land. right? His point is not to have some external term of respect that you give your husband. It's not about externalism. It's about the heart. His point is that all of us as believers are to have not just actions of honoring everyone. We are to have hearts that honor and respect everyone. Even when no one else is around. That bites. My boss... I'll do what he asked me to do. But man, can you believe he's like this and he's doing this and he's asked me to do this? President, if he comes to church tomorrow, why are you on a Monday? No. Um, (laughs) Oh, I'll show him respect. But when he's not there in my face, I can't believe he's doing that. Can you believe he's probably like this? My husband, absolutely, man. I'll, I'll clean the house, you know, give you dinner. I'll do these things. Just can't stand the guy, though. Enduring goodness starts here, in the heart. Evangelism starts here, in the heart. Gospel transformation starts here in the heart. This, it's not our lives necessarily that catch the world's attention. It's what our heart does with our lives that catches the world's attention. Respectful submission that imitates Christ's goodness and draws others to Him begins in the heart. It is a heartfelt, sincere respect because the unbelieving world, I want you to know, they can see past, insen- they, they can see past ins- ins- uh, insincerity. And they can look past and they can get hypocrisy. They can see hypocrisy from a mile away. And what happens in the heart is always going to show itself in the mind and it's going to show itself in the mouth. Sarah was respectfully submissive to her husband. You see it in her life, you see it in her words, but most importantly, you see it in her heart because that's where God always looks, doesn't he? He looks at the hidden person of the heart. Who are we before God there? 
So when it comes to a Christ-like wife's respectful submission to her husband, there's no better illustration than the one that Peter gives here in this passage. It is Sarah's, Abraham's wife. Because she pictures Christ. And because Christ had a heart of submission, you and I are saved. He took upon himself the form of a servant, being obedient even to the point of death on a cross. And he asks all of us to join him. And this is the way he asks believing wives. And then, after using Sarah as an example of enduring goodness through respectful submission, Peter wisely follows it up immediately at the end of the verse with the guardrails of marital submission. Guardrails that you don't always see Sarah following all that well. Peter writes, And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Whereas all of us have become children of Abraham, Scripture says, and heirs of God's eternal salvation through faith, believing wives have an opportunity to become Sarah's children, or you could say they in a sense to become imitators or image bearers of Sarah by doing good and not fearing anything that is frightening. These are the guardrails of marital submission. Just like a car on the road, without guardrails in place, you can go too far. Without guardrails in submission... A woman in marriage and any believer under any earthly authority could go too far and, or not far enough when it comes to showing, in this case, respectful submission as a believing wife to her husband. And so Peter supplies these guardrails to prevent believing wives from going too far in either of these extremes. He reminds us here that the only marital submission that radiates grace, reflects Christ, and reaches sinners is a marital submission that only does what is good fearlessly. That's the only submission that honors and glorifies God and radiates grace and reflects the gospel. It is an enduring goodness and submission that only does good all the time, fearlessly. In other words, this is the thing I really want to spend time on this morning. Don't take submission first. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll be balanced. Don't fear anything frightening, which means if God is asking you to submit to your husband, do it. Right? If, if you, like we talked about, you're working as a team, there's an irreconcilable difference, a decision has to be made, and he's the one that has to make the decision in that moment, rather than continue an unending civil war in your home. Say, I recognize that God has given me this man at this moment to be my husband. I will hope in him. So, do good and don't fear anything that's frightening in that regard in terms of not taking submission far enough, but what I want you to think about this morning is do God and do, so, uh, do good and, and do so fearlessly by trusting in God, by making sure you don't take submission too far. Right? To submit to your own husband to the point where you're committing sin is not commendable, nor Christ-like, nor glorifying to God. And again, Sarah wasn't always the best example of this. I already mentioned this, right? Twice she went along with Abraham's lie when she was afraid of foreign kings, and, or when he was afraid of foreign kings, and and said that she was merely Abraham's sister. That was wrong, and that was a sin. You are to submit to your own husband, but only as far as you can continue doing what is good. The moment you're asked to do what is wrong, you do not submit to that for a moment. As Acts 5.29 says, we must obey God rather than man. This is why Paul says over in Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Or you could also say it as is fitting in the Lord. So one danger that Peter's trying to guard against here is that believing wives may take, it's possible, submission, marital submission, too far. And actually, out of fear, stop doing what is good. 
One of the areas where I see this being a danger today that I need to address before we move on to husbands next week, particularly in Christian circles, is when it comes to the area of marital abuse. Listen, nearly one in three women, nearly one in three women will be a victim of domestic violence in their lifetime. And there are some Christians who teach that women should submit to that and stay with their husbands even if they're physically threatening and harming you. Listen, I want you to know that is not true. I wish I had more time for that this morning. Probably in a later lesson I'll bring it out. Scripture is clear. In Exodus 21:26, Psalms 55:20, Proverbs 13:2, Malachi 2:16, that violence violates and breaks the covenant relationship. In other words, the moment that your spouse is violent towards you, they have severed all rights to the marriage relationship. To use 1 Corinthians chapter 7 language, they've abandoned it. They can make no demands on you. In God's eyes, abuse severs the covenant relationship. And in that moment, sisters in Christ, you are called on in that moment to do what is right without fear. Now, what is right? What is right is to pursue reconciliation. Yes, I agree. We were made for peace. We understand what that is in the gospel, right? But let me tell you some other things that are right when it comes to domestic abuse. What is right when it comes to abuse, when it comes to you, your child, or your spouse? Let me give some guidelines. First, when it comes to you, what is right is to get out. If there's domestic violence going on, it's to get out. Scripture says to avoid the violent man. Proverbs 22, 24-25 says, Make no friendship with a man that is given to anger, and do not go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Avoid him. Get out. Get some distance there. And Scripture also says to care for and protect your own body, which is God's. I don't know if you've thought about this before, but 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 says this, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. He bought all of you, even your body, to redeem. So glorify God in your body. Beloved, you need to nourish, cherish, and protect your body because it doesn't belong to your spouse. And it doesn't even belong to you. It belongs to God. He purchased it for redemption by His own blood. So when it comes to you, do what is right and get out. Second, when it comes to your kids in the area of abuse, do what is right and protect them. Do what is right and protect them. As a parent, you've been called to care for your family. If you don't, 1 Timothy chapter 5 says that you're acting no different than an unbeliever. You're not demonstrating Christ by keeping your children in a violent and an abusive relationship and environment. You need to protect them. Psalms 82, verses 3-4 through says, Give justice to the weak and to the fatherless. Maintain the rights of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked one. Excuse me. Rescue them from the hand of the wicked. When it comes to you, do what is right and get out. When it comes to your kids, do what is right and protect them. And finally, when it comes to your spouse and the issue of domestic violence, do what is right and expose their sin. Do what is right and expose their sin. 
Do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Ephesians 5, 7-12 says this, Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And here's what's pleasing to the Lord. Very next verse. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in in secret. If you want your husband to walk in the light as God is in the light, then what he is doing has to be brought out of the darkness. You need to talk to the appropriate spiritual leadership that God has given you. He needs to be brought out of the darkness that he loves because his deeds are evil. And he needs to be brought into the light. If he's ever going to be truly repentant, And even if he says he's repentant, if he is truly repentant, he must face the consequences for his wrong actions. That's what being repentant looks like. He must face the consequences for his immoral and illegal sin. As Proverbs 19.19 says this, a man of great wrath must face the penalty. If you deliver him, you will only have to do it again and again and again and again. Don't join your spouse in the darkness of secrecy. Stand in the light as a child of the light. Do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Do what is right and expose their sin so that they might be kept accountable and have a hope of reaching true Genuine, lasting repentance. If he claims the name of Christ and he stretched out his hand in violence towards you who also bears the name of Christ, it's no longer between the two of you. This is something that requires the church's attention. Because this is what enduring goodness looks like. It looks like doing good and not fearing anything that is frightening. And I needed to say that in the culture in which we live. When it comes to you, do what is right and get out. When it comes to your kids, do what is right and protect them. When it comes to spiritual soul and eternal destiny of your husband, do what is right and expose his sin. For you are her children. If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And that's where I want to say, and I know I've said it before, that we as a church, as your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, are committed to helping you do that if you're in a situation like that. I've said it before. If you have a husband who is trying to control you by fear, or if you have a husband you are afraid of, you could put it that way, please come and talk to me or one of the elders of the church. And if that's too much reach out to Laura and JC in the church office. They'll put you in touch with a sister in Christ who has helped others walk through this and who can help you walk through this as well. Because we as a church are committed to help you, protect you, and shepherd you in doing what is good without any fear. I understand that when you're in the middle of abuse, you can sometimes think that no one cares, no one sees, and that there's no safe place to go. And I want you to know that your church family is committed to being that place. We'll take you in. We as members will give you a place to stay. We'll come around you. 
the men of this church will keep you safe. We'll shepherd you. We want to show that our faith is genuine by, as James 1.27 says, caring for each other when we're in affliction. So please, if this is you, don't live in fear anymore. Please reach out after this service sometime this week. Let us help you to do what is good and not fear anything that's frightening. These are the guardrails of marital submission. And husband, if I just described you, come talk to me. I want to help shepherd you in doing what is good and not fearing anything that is frightening as well. Do what is right. Do what is good. Honor Christ. Honor everyone. So this is the Christ-like wife's respectful submission to her own husband. A submission from the heart that always does what is good fearlessly. (sighs) Sorry. So let me ask you, all of you, this. How's your Christ-like character developing? Is your life and your interactions with your spouse undermining your Christian testimony? Or is it underlining it? Are the only people who think you follow Jesus and are spiritually mature the people who actually don't even know you? Or would those who are closest to you, who see you each and every day, say, yes, I know that this person is increasingly knowing, loving, and acting like Jesus? I don't... I'm not asking you what I think about your life. I'm not even asking you what the people in this church think. I'm wanting you to start by asking, what does your spouse think? What does your family think? And then take it one more step. What does God know your heart to be? And listen, if you understand like me that we've got a long ways to go in this, respecting everyone, even those closest to us for the honor and glory of Christ, I want, again, for you to turn and look at Jesus. For it is the very grace and glory of Jesus Christ which He bestows upon His children when we call on Him in faith. And if you recognize you need to grow in this, then I would encourage you, right where you're sitting, call out to God and say, Oh God, make me a man who sh- and a woman and a child who shows the, the respectful submission and honor that I must in this world for the honor and glory of Christ. What would your wife say about your devotion to Jesus? What would your husband say? Would they say that Christ is the most important person and priority in your life at this moment? Or would they say that something else is winning out, something that is earthly and temporary? Would they say that you're living a beautifully pure and respectful life before God and others? Or would they say that you're a fake who's putting on a show in order to please people? You know one way you can find out? 
Go home and ask your spouse today and listen to what they say. That's your homework. Does your home life undermine your Christian testimony or underline it? For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. By submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. May God give us grace this week to so adorn our souls with the virtue and devotion of Christ that we might, by God's grace, win those closest to us to the kingdom of God and His saving righteousness as they see Jesus and His enduring and fearless goodness lived out in us. This is the word of God from 1 Peter 3, 1-6, through 6, which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience in the fervent care of one another until he who is our hope returns. To that end, let's pray. Dear Holy Father, I thank you so much for your word. Thank you for how it is encouraging and it is convicting. Father, we pray that you would help us as a church Show the enduring goodness of Christ this week so that we who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good may be able to give other people glimpses of that goodness so that they might ask us beyond us telling them even. They might ask us for a reason for the hope that is in us. Help us, Father, this week to be committed to this. Help us to be committed to doing what is good according to Your Word and not fear anything that is frightening. Help us, Father, to live the rest of our time here on earth calling You as Father. Help us to conduct our time here on earth with fear only towards You. Give us grace this week to underline the gospel by our lives, even as we proclaim it by our words. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.